if you'd turn to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel 5, and we'll finish. We'll pick up in verse 18, really back to verse 17, which we covered last Sunday night. And a message I've entitled, Be Careful What You Ask For. You know, so very often as we kind of view our lives through the lens of Scripture, we have a tendency to isolate the things that are said in the Bible as if they pertain to somebody else at some other point in time rather than they pertain to us in the day and time that we live in. We look sometimes at ancient things and we say, well, that's just you know something that happened during Daniel's time. And while it's true, there is a historical context, and that certainly is a, is a large portion of uh, this particular part of the book of Daniel, there's some spiritual application that is unbelievably important. Because God does honor our choices. He sometimes gives us things that we ask for, even when we ask for things that we probably shouldn't have asked for. If we ask long enough, hard enough, and out of a very convinced heart that we want God to change his mind about something he probably has a different opinion about. And that's certainly true in tonight's passage. If you remember back in verse 17, before we move on to verse 18, then Daniel answered and said to the king, let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. And yet I'll read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation Daniel's taking the right path. The king has an opportunity to hear the words of Daniel and repent, and he doesn't take it. Because Daniel's taking a stand, a very strong stand. He said, King, I'm going to tell you the answer. I'm going to give you the the interpretation of your dream. I'm going to let you know what this handwriting is, what you've seen on the wall. I'm going to give you that. But I want you to know something I'm not for sale. And the fact that you'd ask is, is intimating there's something wrong with your thinking. And Daniel now is about to, to move into the place of a prophet. He's going to speak into the king's life. He's going to speak into the kingdom's life. He's going to pronounce doom uh, upon Babylon itself, and that doom will come swiftly. There's three parts to tonight's story. First, there's a sermon that Daniel gives. The second part is the significance of the handwriting He's going to interpret the writing that's on the wall. And then he's going to kind of give us a picture of a sequel of events that hasn't happened yet. Some things that are still yet future. He's going to point us forward, give us some principles that we can cling to. uh, That as we approach the end of the age of grace, it would behoove us to ask ourselves some questions. And so if you join me, we'll pray and ask God to move in our midst tonight. Father, thank you for this time. Bless us as we study your word. Encourage us, Lord, in our faith. Build us up. We honor you tonight as king, Lord, the one true king. And so we give you this time as you might speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm guessing if Belshazzar, looking back from where he is right now, awaiting judgment, there in the Abuso, if he had it to do all over, he'd rethink asking for the temple implements from Jerusalem. He'd probably make that decision a little differently. But the problem is you don't get a chance to rethink things once you're gone. You don't get an opportunity to get saved once you're already lost. 
you, you don't get a second chance after the one chance, the one life that God gives you. And one of the unique and very significant things about our journeys here on this earth is we all get exactly one life, but your life is your life. God may give me more days or less days than you, and the converse could be true in your life. You might have more, you might have less. You might have ample opportunities. You might be given hundreds of opportunities to come to faith in Christ, to understand who the Lord is, or you might get one. But you're going to get one for sure. And whether that's at a time of God's choosing as you're heading out the door, or whether it's early in life, I believe that everyone at some point in time, either by the Holy Spirit through the creation itself, is, is made known. I don't think God can simply choose to send someone to hell. You have to make that choice yourself. And so we see this in this passage tonight. God doesn't strive with us forever. Sometimes we think because we're in the age of grace that God just keeps on going and going and going and going. And while it's true, he's very patient. And he's extremely long-suffering. God has his limits. There are things that he will not move one iota further down the road with. There, There is a limit which he will not pass. And we see that in this passage tonight. You have to choose whose side you're on. You have to select for yourself whom you're going to serve. You need to do the Joshua 2024 thing. You you, you have to figure out this day whom you're going to serve. That's on you. That's incumbent upon me. And when it comes to God's covenant people, you have to decide which side of that issue you stand on. Back in Genesis chapter 12, part of the Abrahamic covenant God said I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you says the Lord and all the families of the earth shall be in you blessed and so God has a very strong opinion about what the world does and how they react and respond to the Jewish people and one of the things that I think the world flirts with is the same disaster that Belshazzar flirts with in this particular chapter. And that is failing to see God's love for his covenant people. God loves the Jewish people. They're still his chosen people. And he intends to fulfill every covenant promise that he made to them. And in order for that to happen, they have to survive. They have to continue on. There has to be a next day and a next day and a next day until we see the fulfillment of Romans chapter 11. That day in which all Israel is is saved. Belshazzar is about to step over that threshold. He's in essence saying, you know, I really don't care what you think, God. And so as we pick up here in verse 18, we kind of get a picture of, of a man who's so bent on having his, his own way that he misses who he's messing with. Verse 18, Daniel 5. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom, a majesty, 
glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, notice where the majesty came from, came from God. All kings and all kingdoms received their majesty, their glory, their rule. They, they were put there by God, whether they're an evil king or a righteous king, God is the one who installs all of them. It's hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around, but it is nonetheless true. And it says that all peoples and nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. Whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was disposed from his kingly throne. And it just shows this incredible picture of God's sovereign hand in spite of the way it being seen to people who are on this earth. And he took his glory from him. Remember, he spent seven years wandering around eating grass like a cow. And he's driven from the sons of men. His heart was made light. Excuse me. I'm going to cough momentarily. I'm trying not to. Maybe I need to. Yes. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. And they fed him with grass like an oxen. And his body was wet with dew of heaven. Till he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of men. And appoints over it whomever he chooses. Now it almost sounds contradictory. It's like okay God installs him. Then God allows him to make his own choices. He makes his own choices. Then God punishes them. But you have to leave the latter part in there. When he repented, when he came to his senses, God also restored him. God had a purpose for his life, set up the kingdom of Babylon to serve, really, I believe, to serve the Lord. They refused that. And so God humbles him. And the issue there is pride. It's the same issue that Satan himself had. It's the same issue that we have to fight in our own lives. We either govern our own lives in our own Lord, or we turn to the one true and living God, the Lord who is Lord of all, to the King of Kings. Verse 22 goes on to say, But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. And although you knew all of this, and this is where it starts to get very interesting moving forward in history, it does appear that as God progressively reveals himself to mankind, that his patience gets shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter still. Now, that doesn't mean he runs out of patience, and it doesn't mean that he becomes unkind. It certainly doesn't mean that he becomes unjust. But it does mean that when God has revealed himself over and over and over and over and over again, and we fail to see it when there's been generations of goodness... When the people in Babylon could look back to the great king Nebuchadnezzar and then to his son, Nabonidus, who's now ruling in Saudi Arabia at this time, and his son, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, 
Belshazzar. And when there is a very long history of God being extremely good to a people, to withholding his justice, withholding his judgment, to not doing what he should do to punish sin sometimes, there seems to be a much shorter distance between where people are and where God says enough is enough. Belshazzar, you've not humbled your heart. Although you knew all of this and you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and they've brought the vessels of his house before you and your lords and your wives and your concubines and you've drunk wine from them. You've praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all of your ways you have not glorified. And then the fingers of the hand were sent from him and this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Mani, mini, tekel, yefarsin. Belshazzar should have known better. He'd already seen the grace of God. He'd already understood that there was a God in heaven. And in fact, uh, his grandfather very clearly and, and very specifically came to that place where he understood who God was. And so as Daniel interprets his handwriting that's going to be on this wall, it, it ends up making this king, two generations later, all the more culpable He couldn't say, well, I didn't know the God of Daniel. Now, bear in mind, Daniel's gone from being a teenager. He's now going to be 62 years old. So this isn't like a momentary flash-in-the-pan kind of revelation. This is a very long history of God preserving the Jewish people, God raising them up in the midst of this heathen nation, And their witness being absolutely spotless before the Lord, we're told of absolutely nothing that Daniel or his three friends did that brought shame to the Lord. They withstood every pressure, every plan, and they're going to have yet another thing happen to them, which they are going to pass. That boldness, that courage that Daniel and his three friends have should have been a word to Belshazzar should have been able to see and I liken it to our own country and I I will kind of remind us that towards the end of tonight you know when God has been good to a nation when God has spared a people when God in spite of our own sins and wickedness has gone the extra mile you would think that would turn and incline your heart towards the Lord And if God's going to act like this with a pagan nation that did not have the full revelation of the grace of God, i.e. Babylon, I wonder what he thinks about our own nation turning its back on God. Continuing to praise the gods of silver and gold and iron and materialism and ability to make war 
and the things that we struggle with in our day and time. Bottom line is the day of reckoning had arrived. It was now upon him. And so Daniel gives that interpretation of these three words. This is the interpretation, verse 26 says, of each word, meaning, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. And it's interesting to me that that word is repeated. It's as if he's saying, (coughs) your kingdom is done. No, really, your kingdom's done. It's over. Now think of where Daniel is. He's in the presence of the king. We're told the lords, his concubines, the satraps, all of the people of his government are also there. They have brought in the implements from the temple in Jerusalem, which is destroyed. And they're having their way, in essence, with these things which were precious to the Jewish people and precious to God. You would think that that might hinder a little bit any type of negative connotation that Daniel might make. Like, well, you know, king, you know, it's kind of, uh, this isn't really all that good what you're doing right here, but, uh, you know, I can understand how you might think that way. No, he wasn't going to budge an inch. Your kingdom's over. You crossed the line. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. God's righteousness and holiness is put on one side, and the kingdom of Babylon is put on the other. God's justice and judgment is put on one side, the kingdom of Babylon is put on the other. God's goodness and love and kindness is put on one side, and the cruelty, the horrible treatment of the Jewish people is put on the other side. You can kind of see it's like here's the the scales have been loaded up. And they're radically weighted in God's favor. You've been found very wanting. Paris, which actually is a shortened version of Eupharson. Your kingdom has been divided and has been given to the Medes and the Persians. Now the Medes and the Persians would have come from modern-day Iran. This is in modern-day Iraq, and so four or 500 miles between these two areas. And at that time, Persia was not the great nation that it would become, but it was on the rise. And so Daniel begins to say to the king, look, God's numbered your days. God holds your hand. God holds in his hand your life, the life of your kingdom. You've only been allowed to exist because God has allowed you to exist is basically what he's saying. You may think that your empire was so strong that it's self-existent, but it's not self-existent. God allowed it. And I think in the course of human history, when you look at most of the great kingdoms that have ever risen up, and, and we could look at a number of them, but we've already mentioned several of them in the study of this book. 
whether you're talking about the Medes or the Persians or the Babylonians or the Assyrians, which would have come slightly before both of these groups, whether you could talk about the Egyptians or following after them the Greeks or the Romans, or whether you're talking about the Americans. God is still the king of heaven and earth. He is still the rightful deed holder to this planet. And anyone that's in power is in power only so long as God says they can stay in power. Not one second longer. And people usually come up with the argument, well, why did, you know, why did God allow Hitler? Or why did God allow Mao? Or why did God allow Pol Pot or Genghis Khan or name some despot ruler? Because God's ways are not our ways. And sometimes hard-headed people need very serious circumstances to come into their lives in order to be redirected into the right kind of thinking. And so God does allow the Assyrians to come and attack the Israelites. God allows the Babylonians to take the Israelites captive. God allows the Romans after them and the Greeks. God allowed the Egyptians to take them slavery. God allows all kinds of things. Don't mistake God's allowance for God's approval. God's not saying those things are good. God's simply saying, I'm still in control. And this is the lesson you need to learn. So God sometimes allows Babylonians into our lives. Sometimes God allows the Assyrian Empire into our lives. But God always has a plan to deal with what he allows. And that plan's about to come to fruition in the case of Babylon. It seemed like Daniel and the Jewish people were done. And so what we see here is the consistency of God's justice. Abraham recognized those things. And if you remember, as he was looking at Sodom, here is silly nephew Lot has pitched his tent towards the despicable place Abraham's reminded him son you don't want to live there you don't belong you're a righteous man you should not have your tent pitched towards Sodom and you all know the scene Men are trying to escape. Angels come to town. The men of Sodom attempt to molest the angels. God pronounces judgment. He says, this is not okay. And then Abraham goes to bat for the city of Sodom. And he gets down to 10 people. But the conclusion that Abraham had, because he understood God's character, he understood God's justice, the consistency of it, he said, far be it, Lord. Far be it, Lord, for you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked. See, God has a way of preserving the righteous no matter what happens in this world. Now for us, we we look at all things from a human view and we don't see it the way God sees it. Abraham would go on saying, treating the 
righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, God. Will not the judge of the earth do right? And the answer is, the judge of the earth will always do right. And so just because we don't understand the things that God allows, we have to be careful that we don't start having an opinion about what God allows as if he has been unjust. It's easy to do. We can probably all think of things in human history that we go, I don't know why God allowed that. I don't agree with God allowing that. But why did Babylon fall in this case? What was the problem? God's grace had ended. They'd finally spit on that grace long enough. They kept going down the same path that they got delivered from the last time. They kept failing to turn. And as a nation, when that happens, the people in a general sense become hardened to the voice of God. They stop listening. And they start doing their own thing. They start going their own way. They fail to yield to the grace of God. And so God pulls out the justice card. And this is where I think it behooves us as Americans in our day and time to remember we have a responsibility to do what Daniel did. And that's to keep standing for the truth when everyone else wants to believe the lie. To keep trusting God when everyone else says, why do we want to trust him? To keep standing on the word when everyone else is abandoning the word. To believe that God is true and just and he is consistent in that justice. Even though we can't see exactly how that justice is being worked out in the moment. God is just. In Amos chapter 4, it says this, Therefore, this is what I will do to you, O Israel. Because I will do this to you, prepare yourself to meet your God, O Israel. And he's pronouncing a judgment on them. Even to his own people, he only goes so far. And so when people come and try and change your mind on biblical issues... It should be a reminder to you. It should be a reminder to us as the church. When God has spoken, God has spoken. He's not changing his mind. He's not going to go back and, you know, rethink, for instance, what he did with Sodom. He's not going to change his opinion on that just because we think he should. He is always against injustice. So anytime there's injustice, God's always against it. So just because some injustice exists doesn't mean that we should change our opinion and all all of a sudden become unjust. It's not as though God is approving of it. God's already said how he feels about injustice. So we should be on the side of justice. There's going to be a last night for every nation, just as there's going to be a last night for every individual. There's going to be a last day. There's a last breath. There's a time that Scripture says is appointed unto man one time and then judgment. And whether that's a king and a kingdom or whether that's you and me as individuals, it is true. God just simply doesn't strive forever. And so 
Babylon is uh, about to meet Ellie, an extinction, 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 extinction level event. I don't know why that word was so hard. It's probably because of my cold. Have you ever wondered if there's a thing in your own life that might be the final thing, the final straw, the last thing, the final day, the last moment? If you've thought that, you're wise because there is. The only problem is you don't know what it is. And so the reason this is important is we should live every day as though God does know it. And so when he tells us how we ought to live, our best choice is to live exactly how he wants us to live. Because that is the way that we stay close to him and out of his sights in a sense of justice and judgment. But if I choose to move away from him and I begin to dismiss the fact that he does have a final day for me and everyone else in every country, every nation, every king, every kingdom, then I begin to think about myself as though I control all of that. And the fact of the matter is we don't control all of it. I have buried young children I had a young lady that I did CPR on for about 45 minutes. We flew her by helicopter from Green Valley Lake all the way down to Loma Linda. Uh, She never recovered. She was 13 years old. Looked to be in absolutely stunning prime health. Was swimming with her friends in the lake. Began to struggle, struggle swimming. We got the call. I responded got there with the medic ambulance and I sat there with her parents on the beach while I'm doing CPR on their little girl and they kept saying why, 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 why I didn't have an answer she was 13 in the prime of health and she had a massive coronary event with absolutely no symptoms we, we don't know I don't know when I'm going home to be with Jesus. So we need to treat every day as precious and every day as belonging to the king. They're all his days. The apostle Paul said that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works so that we should walk in them. And so our obligation is to say, God, let me do everything so that you are pleased with me. Let my life be an example to others of you and your goodness. Not let my life be an example of me and my stubbornness or my pride, which was the case of Belshazzar. And so Belshazzar is just thinking, hey, I'm partying with the temple goods from Israel. I mean, I've got it going on here. I'm like, the, I'm like the main dude. I can do anything I want. And God in one night says, oh no, you can't. Verse 29, and then Belshazzar gave the command. And they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, I find this absolutely fascinating. Belshazzar is keeping his word. 
says, I, I want you to interpret this. I'm going to make you a ruler in the kingdom if you do so. He even believes in that sense that Daniel told him what Daniel believed he saw, but he doesn't believe Daniel. He doesn't believe Daniel's God. But in order that he not be shamed, he keeps his word. Verse 30 and 31. And that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. You see, when we're walking with the Lord, when you and I are doing what God wants us to do, then whatever that day is, it's all good. But when you're not walking with the Lord, that is going to come upon you and everyone around you is going to go, well, why did that happen? I've gotten to the place in my life where every day is precious to me. It's like, I don't know when my last day is going to be. I just want this one to count. You see, Belshazzar thought he had some more days. Thought he could go on thumbing his nose at God indefinitely. But God had reached the end of his patience. And that very night, the king of the Babylonians was slain. And that very night was the end of the Babylonian Empire. It became the empire of the Medes and the Persians. God will not be mocked, as we saw this morning. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that he will be mocked. Whatever you sow, that you will also reap. And in this case, this prideful, arrogant king thought he could just continue to say whatever he wanted to to God, and God was going to put up with it. The interesting contrast to that is that you and I have been promised a crown for just simply overcoming we keep doing what God wants us to do. One day, you're, you're going to get to the Lord of glory. You're going to stand before the judgment seat of the Lord. You're going to hear those words, well done. Enter in, good and faithful servant to my kingdom of rest. And oh, by the way, here's a reward for the things that you've done in this body. <clears throat> that is not what Belshazzar got that night. Belshazzar heard, depart, for I've never known you. People have debated the truth of this particular passage based on it being so abrupt and so blunt. Now imagine that you happen to be the king of the greatest empire on the face of the earth and one night you're the king of the greatest empire on the face of the earth and the next night you're not. Matter of fact, the next night you're dead and your kingdom's dead. Kind of sounds almost a little bit fantastic, doesn't it? Well, it was fantastic until about the middle 1800s. Middle 1800s, the city of Babylon began to be excavated. And when they began to excavate the city of Babylon, the ancient city, uh, they actually uncovered this particular palace, including the Ishtar Gates and this particular watercourse of the Euphrates River that was diverted. And then the historical account was found on some more tablets, just like the ones that we talked about last time. And so we have some additional historical record of this incredible palace complex in which 
King Belshazzar is making his boastful and arrogant, prideful stand against the Lord. And at the same time, it is the place where Darius, this man named probably uh, Gobrius, which is the historical name that was given to him, but he was given the, the name Darius as the ruler of this particular kingdom, uh, which, be, which would become the kingdom of the Medes. And people say, well, you know, I mean, how, how exciting can it be? Well, if you travel to the Pergamum Museum in Berlin, um, those are the actual Ishtar gates. They've been reconstructed, but those are the original bricks from the Ishtar gates inside the capital city of Babylon at the time of Darius the Mede. And the reason we know this is they were described by three historians. As King Cyrus comes on the scene, we're actually even told uh, in his particular chronicle how he did this. And the way that he did this is you remember the river flowed through the city. There was a gate on each side. They simply diverted the Euphrates River away from the city. They went underneath the gates, came inside the city, and attacked the king because he thought the kingdom was impenetrable. There's no possible way that anyone could get inside. And furthermore, he's in this incredibly beautiful fortified city. Um, Those are actually ceramic glazed tiles. They look like lapis lazuli. In fact, in Babylonian and cuneiform, the term lapis means blue. And so here's this king that's sitting in the middle of his throne room, throwing a party in a building like that that thinks Daniel's God can't touch him. has a river running through his city. As Cyrus approaches, as they begin to open up these canals that flooded the farmland next to the city, as the river dried up because it was summer of 539 BC, the great historians of the time tell of how Cyrus just simply walked right in Historian Xenophon actually gives great detail about how the people that were aligned with Cyrus just literally walked into the city. Nobody was expecting them. And it's a picture for us. When you set yourself against God, he has plans, he has purposes, he has people and principles of which you know not. He can take down any king. He can take down any kingdom. And so as Herodotus wrote about this particular man, Gobrius, who would later be named Darius, he was actually bragging about the simplicity of his plan. And he said that the people inside of the city were so drunk from partying that it was as if they were fighting children. Interesting. The very thing that Belshazzar was bragging about, bring out the temple implements. We're going to drink out of those. Became the tool of his own destruction. And so it's a picture for us. It's a reminder for each of us. There's some additional application you can make from this particular passage. I think as you see the lineage of Israel's king, 
kings, we, we can see the godly results of godly kings and the ungodly results of ungodly kings, and that's true always. The individual persons, as they follow the Lord, God honors that. But you can also see the greater picture in history. King Hezekiah would be a perfect example of that. King Uzziah, which we're now studying in the book of Isaiah, ends up giving you know, this birth to this son, which is an absolute madman. We can see that in the story of Belshazzar. You have a godly king, ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar, who finally turns to the Lord. Doesn't necessarily mean that the entire family is going to follow the Lord. Each of us has an individual responsibility for, for our own person, our own relationship to follow Christ. And so as we make that decision, Ezekiel kind of gives us a little insight, and this is in Ezekiel 18, verses 19 and 20, and it says, yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right, and has kept all of my statutes and observed them, and surely he will live. You see, back in those days, basically people were treated kind of in, in a corporate way. It's like if your dad was bad, you were bad. God doesn't see it that way. God can preserve individuals even though those individuals live inside of a, a very debauched culture. That's why there's hope for every nation, every person on the planet. Inside of every culture, is, as awful as it may be, verse 20 there in Ezekiel 18 says, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. Righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. God is going to hold every last person responsible based on who they are, what they know, and what they have done individually. So even when God allows things like corrupt kings and kingdoms to exist, he watches after every single righteous person individually. He works all those things out. I don't know how he does it, so don't ask me to you know, you know, paint numbers on the people on pictures and say, well, what happened to this guy? I don't know. But I know what the Bible says. And the Bible says that God takes care of the righteous. If they're few in number or many, that God doesn't visit the son, the sins of the father onto the sons or the sons onto the father. And so in this case, there were probably some decent people in the city of Babylon who had grown up under Nebuchadnezzar who knew Daniel's God. And so don't just assume that they all got wiped out. God looked after them. And it will be on the basis of your own merit that one day you're going to stand before the Lord. But God has his limits. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Been a long day. God has a deadline for his patience is another way to look at it. So, so don't presume upon his patience. When you, you meet somebody in your own life and they're going the wrong direction, be a real friend, be a real brother, be a real sister, and remind them God has his limits. He doesn't strive forever. 
and you can't tell them how long he's going to go you know sometimes when I, i'm dealing with a repetitive sin issue in somebody's life and they'll come to me and say you know i i just you know i'm just not ready to give it up yet i will usually resort to these types of passages fairly quickly it's like why would you want to mess with the righteousness of god what would possess you to think that you're going to get another chance tomorrow to repent when you can repent today God also has a line on blasphemy. In other words, defaming his name. And you can see it here. It's like, man, as soon as the temple implements come out, it's over. God has a timing on his judgment. Even though he may allow something to go for a very long time, there, there will come a point in time when the judgment is swift, it is sure, it is done, it's over. And God has a finish line for each one of us. Those are truths that you can, they're sure. And as as Christians, we have one more line to get over, and that's our own personal line. The first three, the Lord took care of himself. His, His patience has been meted out in the blood of Christ. And so by grace, we've been saved through faith, that patience of God to you who knows the Lord is now from everlasting to everlasting. You can't outdo the patience of God when you're in Christ Jesus. Those things are blasphemy. Now the only blasphemy that you could undertake would be the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And since the Holy Spirit lives in you, it's not likely you're going to do that. And that line of judgment, the timing which God alone knows you now can rest in that because the Lord Jesus has said, if you're absent from this body, you're going to be present with the Lord. So that's really not that big a threat anymore. But you do have a finish line. And we don't know what it is. And so we look forward to that day. That's why the Apostle Paul said, look, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. As he writes to Timothy there in 2 Timothy, I'm now waiting for that award day if you will when the righteous judge the king of heaven is going to give the that award for these things that we've done in this body that crown of righteousness for which we await and so i think as we look and close it's like i kind of look at our country as though i wonder if we've lost sight about how much god hates to be profaned blasphemed see God's really gracious and he's really gracious for a long period of time but he has his limit it's pretty clear in this passage and God is gracious towards those who are repentant of heart but can I tell you God's not necessarily patient with the rebellious mocker the person that just thumbs their nose at God he doesn't just necessarily go on forever. When you set yourself against him, he is also set against you at that point in time. That's why it's so important for us to understand that we're no longer under the law. I was actually created to praise God, to glorify him. And so when I have no desire for that purpose, 
if I was created for that purpose and I don't want that purpose, there's really not a purpose for God to leave me here. And so then you're presuming on the grace of God. Man should be keeping sacred the things that God calls sacred. He calls all life sacred, by the way. He calls marriage sacred, by the way. He calls your body sacred, by the way. He calls your mind also sacred. It belongs wholly unto the Lord, by the way. And so God takes serious the sacredness of that with which he has pronounced things sacred. And so we should listen to that. In a single night, the Babylonian Empire ceased to exist. And this moves forward into what lies ahead for the whole world. Because the revived Roman Empire, which the Roman Empire would follow after the Greeks, so the Babylonians fade into existence, the Medes and the Persians come along after them, the Greeks after them, the Romans after them, and after them, as we saw in this incredible statue, there will be a revived Roman Empire. The Bible says that that revived Roman Empire will have exactly the same fate as Babylon. Revelation chapter 18 says there in verses 9 and 10, and when the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her, speaking of Babylon, the revised Babylon, the renewed Babylon, the Babylon of the last days, which I believe will both be literal and also a, pic- <laughs> a picture of that final uh, ruling empire of the Antichrist, the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her, shared in her luxury will see the smoke of her burning and they will weep and mourn over her terrified at her torment. They'll stand afar off and cry, woe, woe to the great city, O Babylon, city of power. In one hour, your doom has come. So God doesn't change. He's consistent. When you set yourself just as the Antichrist will against God, just as swiftly and as surely as King Belshazzar meets his end so swiftly and surely will the Lord come and deal with that sin. And yes, there will be seven years of tribulation. Yes, the church will be raptured prior to that. Yes, there will be a tremendous battle that we call the battle of Armageddon at the second coming of the Lord. Yes, all those things will happen. But when God says it's time, it's time. God knows when he's coming. God knows when he is going to send Jesus back to fetch the church before the Antichrist rises up in the last days and reveals himself. And prior to that time there in Matthew 24, it says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up into the day that Noah entered the ark and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And this is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. I think people are prone to be oblivious to the obvious. They're prone to look right at the problem and go, eh, that's not a problem. Everybody's doing it. 
Everybody's partying. Everybody's turning their back on God. Nobody believes that Christian stuff anymore. I mean, I mean, who wants to, you know, why would you want to do that? I mean, we have, after all, recreational marijuana in California. I mean, we're, we've got it going on. We've got everything we need. I, I wonder if the Lord started the countdown clock yet. I wonder if the horses are warming up in heaven. The Bible says there'll be more crying out for flesh. Give us what we want. Give us what we ask for. Belshazzar believed he was safe behind the Ishtar gates. He, he believed in the midst of his own thinking about God that what he thought was correct, that there was no God that Daniel worshipped. If there was a God, it was Marduk, the sun, the moon God of the Babylonians, and he wasn't really anything to be worried about. And people in the last days are going to think, think the exact same thing about us, that our God is not real that our God if there is such a thing can't do anything they're going to think that he's not coming they're going to think that they have forever and they're going to wander around going oh you've been telling us that the rapture is going to happen for 2,000 years we don't believe that stuff when the writing's already on the wall. God's been scribbling the, on the wall of humanity for a long time. He's been talking to us about drunkenness and pleasure and madness and immorality and homosexuality and idolatry and blasphemy and the rejection of God and impure thoughts and all the junk that we've been doing for centuries, millennia, and saying, look, I, I, this isn't cool. This is not good with me. And man's response has been to heap up more of the same and to rest and trust in horses and chariots and to keep rejecting God. Paul would write to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the first five verses, but mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having a form of godliness but denying its power. Paul told Timothy, don't have anything to do with those people. Jesus is coming again. This earth has a date, date stamp on it. You know, anymore, you can't, you can't buy anything. If you look at this little barcode on this water bottle, that tells you when it was made, where it was produced, what factory it came out of, who inspected it. 
It's all on there, and it, including an expiration date that it shouldn't be sold after. This earth has an expiration date, and it would behoove man to remind themselves that Jesus is coming again. And only he knows when that day is. No one knows the day or the hour, not even the Son of Man, but we do know the times and the seasons. And so as we look at the times and the seasons, we can easily see, you know that looks a whole lot like Belshazzar's courtyard? You know that looks a whole lot like the time of Noah? You know that looks exactly what Paul said to Timothy That looks exactly like what Paul said to the church at Corinth. That looks exactly like what Paul said to the church at Colossae. That looks exactly like what the world's supposed to look like when the Lord finally says it's time. So be bold. Here's my challenge to you. Daniel didn't back off. He said, world, king, keep your cash. I don't need it. Where I'm going, we use that for paving material. You can hang on to all your cash. I have no need. But I do want you to know something. Your time's up. I'm going to keep serving the Lord. So I pray we do the same. We recognize our time here is very limited. If you were to live a long time in human terms, that's a short time compared to eternity. Amen? And the things that we do for the Lord this day are the things that are going to last. The rest of it, one day is going to be rolled up like a scroll and tossed away and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. So let's live our lives like we believe that. Amen? Would you stand and we'll close in prayer. Hopefully this will be my last service teaching where I'm trying to fight coughing the whole time Father thank you for the privilege of being able to share your word with your people and Lord even in the infirmity it is absolutely a privilege and so I thank you for it and pray that you would just strengthen us and God we we ask that in in these days that we live Lord the world is doing these same things thinks it has all the answers People in the world think that they have everything and need nothing. People without you are saying you don't exist. Saying we should change our opinion about who you are and make a God of our own making. Lord, we believe you're just and you're long-suffering and you're good. But we also believe that this world has a date stamp. There's a time There's an hour coming. Lord, we ask you to extend the age of grace a while longer and that we'd be busy about your business seeking those who are lost and sharing the gospel. Use us for your glory. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem tonight. Lord, we ask that you would move in our midst to instruct us from heaven on how we ought to live our lives. Thank you for the example of this amazing man, Daniel. Bless us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.